Loving Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the way that it focuses us on what really matters. And we ask you, Lord, to speak to us now and move us towards your direction as we look at your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, I had a memorably frustrating conversation with one of my children. Uh, I think he was about 10, uh, and he'd been learning the saxophone at school, and I think we'd been paying for some lessons for him uh, outside the normal lessons as well. And I said to him, are you, are you keen to keep learning the saxophone next year? And he said, no, I don't think so. I said, why not? You're very good at the saxophone. He said, yeah, but I know how to play it now. Uh, I said, yes, but surely there's more that you can learn about how to play the saxophone. He said, I know how to play it. I said, surely you haven't mastered it. You surely could get better at it. It's not as if you're the world's greatest saxophonist. There's plenty of room for improvement, I'm sure. He said, yeah, but I can do it now. I don't need to keep doing it. I said, but don't you want to get better at it? Uh, isn't that the point of learning an instrument, to get better and better and better? He said, I can do it. Now, obviously, learning the saxophone was not something that was really gripping him anymore. Uh, he'd sort of done it and ticked it off the list, and he was ready to move on to other things. Um, basically, I assume he wasn't enjoying it much anymore, but I do think it's a shame. It, it just wasn't a hill that I was willing to die on, or um, a hill that I was willing to kill him on either, <laughs> even though I sort of felt like it during that conversation. But here's a question for you this morning. As a Christian, are you happy where you are? Uh, are you happy to say, I don't need to strive, I have become a Christian? Do you see any point in growing as a Christian, that is getting better at being a Christian? Or have you just sort of ticked that box now and you can sort of move on to other priorities? Jesus, tick. Salvation, tick. Eternal life, tick. Heaven, tick. Now I can just sit back, eat, drink and be merry I have God's grace, I'll now focus on my career, I'll focus on my family, uh, I'll renovate my house, I'll go on some nice holidays, and I'll just wait for heaven to come to me now. What more could you want if you're now a Christian? Well, in Philippians, Paul is writing to people who are actually really good Christians, as far as we can tell from the letter, in a, in a sense, you might, you might say that. Um, and they were dear personal friends of Paul's, uh, as Nicole read in the first the very first bit of Philippians chapter 1, he, uh, Paul is overflowing with thanks to God for their partnership in the gospel. Uh, they'd been remarkably and sacrificially supportive of Paul and his ministry. Uh, and as he tells them, I have you in my heart. I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. But then he tells them what he prays for them. Uh, they were already what we might call very good Christians, but he prays for improvement for them. A big theme in the, in the letter of Philippians is Christian progress. Uh, verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul was confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In chapter 3, Paul's talking about himself and his own ambitions, and he, he says he hasn't yet arrived at the goal, but he presses on. This is the Apostle Paul. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And here in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul tells them how he prays for their progress, even though they were already pretty good, you might say, compared to some of the other churches that he writes to in the New Testament. So you may already be a Christian. Uh, you may already have come some way in your Christian life, even. You might have decades under your, 
under your belt, what more could you want? What more should you be praying for, for yourself and for other people? In Paul's prayer, we have the goal here and now, we have the goal for the end, and then we have the end goal. Um, If you picked up an outline on the way in, those are the three main points that you'll see on it. The first one is our goal for here and now, and that is what is best. Verses 9 into verse 10, Paul says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best. The end result that he's praying for there is that they will be able to discern what is best as Christians. And that's not just talking about discerning something as in a mental exercise, working something out in your head. The word implies testing or proving what is best. Uh, A little bit like um, buying a pair of jeans. I've got in trouble numerous times for shopping online for clothes. Uh, It doesn't always end up very successful. I I dislike shopping, so I'd much rather just click on a few things on the internet. But of course, as, as you know, if you've tried it, you can look at the pictures on the website, you can know what size you are and pick the right size. So in theory, the clothes should be right, but then they arrive and you try them on and they're just wrong. They're the right size, but they just don't seem to fit you, or they, they look very strange, or they weren't what you were expecting, or whatever. And you have to enjoy going to the post office and returning stuff in order to do that, or going to Vinnie's. Um, if you're really going to discern the best clothes, then you have to see them in real life, and you have to try them on. Um, there's really no other way. So the discerning of what is best here for Christians is an active process that involves proving what is best by experiencing it, by trying it on, by tasting it, by living it, not just reading about it or talking about it. But this is not, just, this is not talking about what is best in terms of you have what is best for you and I have what is best for me. What we're talking about here is what is best for everyone, for every human being. These are the things that are important for everyone to discover and to live by best for everyone. And this phrase, what is best, refers to the things that really matter, things that are vital, things that will last, things that will make a difference in eternity, things that lead to a growing knowledge of Jesus Christ in ourselves and in others. So the result that Paul is praying for here is that they would develop a sense of what is vital and demonstrate that by living it out. But how do you, de- how do you develop a sense for what is best? Um, the Jews felt that they could discern what is best by knowing the law really well. But here in Philippians 1, a Christian can do better than the law. For a Christian, love is the key to discerning what is best, according to Paul's prayer. If our love abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, we will be able to discern what is best. Now, why is love the key to this? Because Paul is talking about putting eternal priorities into practice in real life in real-life situations and in the choices that we and others make. You prove what really matters by making choices in your life, moment by moment, day by day, year by year, choices about what you'll do and how you'll behave and how you'll treat other people. It's those choices that prove what really matters. And if those choices are not driven by love, then your moral compass is all over the place and you won't land anywhere near what is best. Um, But of course, love can be a pretty fuzzy concept. It's not just any love that Paul's talking about. It's not just mere sentiment and warm fuzzies. 
It's love in knowledge that is of God through Jesus Christ and it's love in all insight that is in every situation as to what's truly best for us and for others. It's not love that abounds in ignorance of God and blindness to the realities of the situation. It's love in knowledge and depth of insight. It's love that sees clearly what God wants and what is best for other people. It's that kind of love. When a child says to her parents, "Uh, can I go for a swim? Love might incline the parent to give the child what they want. Fair enough. But if you add a bit of insight to that love and you factor in the fact that the child is not a very good swimmer and you're at the beach and there's a big rip and there's huge surf and there are no lifesavers around, then love will make an entirely different decision because of knowledge and depth of insight. Love will say to the child, no, you can't go for a swim, we'll find somewhere safer to go. Even if the child has a tantrum, that's what love will do. Uh, Just so, um, when a friend is having a selfish rant with you and wants you to indulge their whinging, it might seem that love would listen sympathetically and take their side. But love with knowledge and all insight might instead lead you to tell them the truth about their situation and their attitude rather than indulging their ungodliness. Love Love in knowledge and depth of insight will see the need and the priority for their godliness. That is what is best. Or uh, say a friend is contemplating joining a running group that will take them out of church most Sundays for the next six months because they really like running and it's good for their well-being and they haven't really been enjoying church very much lately. Love that abounds in knowledge and depth of insight will tell them what they don't want to hear because that's what is best, planting your flag amongst the people of God on a regular basis and hearing the word of God. Love in knowledge and depth of insight leads to approving what is best for others and wanting to honour God more than pleasing people. So Paul prays for love that abounds here. And sometimes we need abounding love to do the right thing, which is also the hard thing. It's only when love is small that it ignores knowledge and depth of insight. So we need to join Paul in praying for more love. We need enough love to actually seek the good. Enough love for God to not just tell ourselves what we want to hear and enough love for others to aim for more than just making them feel good. Love in knowledge and depth of insight and that is how you show, approve, discern what is best. And if we have love that abounds in knowledge and depth of insight then we will be discerning what is best and be living proof of eternal priorities. That's the goal that Paul prays for in the here and now, discerning what is best. You need clear-headed love. And then Paul prays further ahead, the goal for the end and what will matter in the end. I think a big thing that we can learn from Paul's prayers, um, and I don't know whether you clicked on the link in the email to the list of Paul's prayers that um, Stephen put together, But one thing you see there is that he's often praying with the day of the Lord in view. And I think that's one thing that we can learn. Um, As you pray, keep in mind the prospect of standing before him and the person you're praying for standing before Christ one day. I don't think we pray like that very often. We don't hear prayers like that very often. But in the end, all of life is a preparation for that moment. So why don't we pray with that in mind more for ourselves and one another? Paul prays that they may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 
having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So Paul is picturing these people here on the day of Christ, standing before the great white throne, as we should frequently picture ourselves and one another. What's it going to be like on that day when I stand before Jesus? And he's praying that God would make them ready for that day. Firstly, that they would be pure and blameless. That doesn't mean that they'll be perfect and never sin. That's not a very realistic prayer, I suppose. But nor does it mean just simply that their sins will be covered by the death of Jesus, although I'm sure it includes that. It means that they would make it to the end as sincere, that is, pure Christians. That is, that their faith would not be compromised, that they would not be divided in their loyalties, that they wouldn't sort of get to the day of Christ looking back longingly at the world, like uh, Lot's wife looked back longingly at Sodom and was turned into a pillar of salt, but that they'll get to the day of Christ 100% ready to meet their Lord and Saviour and be with him forever. And similarly, Paul prays that they would be blameless. Uh, That is, they'd be standing there without any shadow of a doubt about where they stand. They stand with Jesus and now they stand before him. So that's the first thing in preparation, pure and blameless. And the second, along with that, Paul prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That is, when you know Jesus Christ, when you're a Christian and you walk with him, you bear fruit. And that fruit is described here as righteousness, which here refers to a quality of godly character and living, righteous living, righteous life. Now, why would we want to have been filled with righteousness when Jesus returns? I mean, we've got his forgiveness anyway for our failures, don't we? Well, because righteousness will be a feature of that day when Jesus comes back. Jesus will judge the world with righteousness. And Jesus will be shown to have saved his people in righteousness through the cross. And then he will establish a renewed heaven and earth, which Peter calls the home of righteousness. That's where we'll be living forevermore. So it's pretty clear that the way to prepare for that day is firstly to make sure you're trusting in Jesus and then to learn righteousness if you want to be ready for the day of Christ. After all, if we knew that in the new heavens and the new earth it was just all going to be water, then what would we be interested in doing now? We'd be out learning how to swim. Uh, If we knew that that the new creation was all going to be the colour purple, then what colour would we be painting our churches? It would be all purple in here. Uh, Just so, we know that the new creation is going to be all about righteousness, so what should we be on about right right now? Of course. And as Paul says here, it's through Jesus Christ that we bear the fruit of righteousness. That is, a relationship with Jesus affects us in that way. He gives us a love for righteousness. We admire righteousness because we admire Jesus. We have a taste for what is good and upright and Christ-like. And so we should be growing in that direction if we actually know Jesus. We are citizens of heaven. We're still living here in this earth, but we belong in heaven. So we should be looking more and more like people who belong with Jesus. So Paul would have us pray that by the time we stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, we will be filled with that fruit of righteousness. We'll be ready and raring to go. Imagine yourself on that day, or imagine your loved ones standing before Jesus on that day, or imagine your neighbour or any human being standing there before the great white throne on that day, and what is going to matter at that point? 
we should be praying that God would make us pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. I know that I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I trust in Jesus and his death. You can know that you're saved in the same way, just by trusting what Jesus has done for you and his grace. I know that I'm ready to meet him, and you can know that you're ready to meet him too. But I want to be completely, fully ready and raring to meet him. You know, I don't want to come before him a little bit compromised. I want to be pure and blameless. I want to, I want to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So that's the goal for the end. And at the, at the end of Paul's prayer, Paul tells us the end goal, which is the glory and praise of God. Don Carson has written a book on Paul's prayers, which I would recommend to you. It's called um, Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And he very helpfully comments at the end of this prayer, uh, where all of this is supposed to end in the glory and praise of God. He comments um, that our pursuit of Christian maturity, our pursuit of righteousness or faith and love and knowledge and insight and all these things, wanting to get better as a Christian can actually be very idolatrous if it is just all about me. You know, I want to get better as a Christian because I want to be good at whatever I do. You know, I want to be somebody around here. That's not honouring to God at all. That's just idolatry, really. Why do I want to get better at being a Christian? Why do I want to be a more mature Christian? Why do I want to be able to discern what is best and then be ready to meet Jesus? It can't be the same reason that people want to get better at running marathons or playing the saxophone or doing cross-stitch or gardening or whatever else. That's for our own fulfilment or our own glory or whatever. But in the end, Christian progress has to be about God and his glory. It's God who saved us in the first place. It's through Jesus Christ that righteousness is given to us. It's all driven by love which is the opposite of self-centeredness. It's, it's about denial of self. And so I mustn't want to make progress as a Christian as just another way of being somebody in the end. <clears throat> I have to want it because I see the infinite worth of the God that I love and I want to bring him glory and praise. So a Christian should never be happy to say, I'm happy where I am, in a sense. Tick, I'm not interested in growing as a Christian. Something would be wrong if, if that were your attitude. What more could you want? Well, you could want to get much better at loving in knowledge and depth of insight and discerning what is best. You could want to be much better prepared for the day of Christ and ready to meet him and in tune with the righteousness of heaven. And so I don't know about you, but um, there is so much more that I want uh, in terms of my own growing in the direction of God and I'm very aware that there is so much further for me to go as a Christian person preparing for the day of the Lord. I guess the question is, is this what we're praying for, for ourselves and for one another? Or do we just get so preoccupied with all kinds of other distractions and concerns? Paul's prayers really cut through, I think, and I hope that that's been the case for you today. Let's pray. <clears throat> Loving Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have sent your Son to save us. We thank you for your incredible grace um, by which you save sinners like us. We thank you, Lord, that we are in a position where we don't need to fear any condemnation. But we do pray, Lord, that you would 
Under your good hand, our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him to your praise and glory. Loving Father, please incline us towards this um, and please be working in us to produce this fruit. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.